Welcome to Insurance Uncovered, the first podcast to bring you insurance news and an inside perspective from thought leaders in the property casualty insurance industry. Insurance Uncovered is produced by the National Association of Mutual Insurance Companies. Hello, everyone. I'm Kathy Imus. Today, we're uncovering wildfire preparations, what insurers can learn from the deadliest and costliest wildfire season in California history. Plus, a trade dispute with China could increase costs for auto manufacturing and repairs. And demonstrating the value of mutuality. Pure CEO Ross Buckmuller shares how the insurance company uses innovation to create a sense of belonging among its policyholders. Residents along the West Coast are preparing for yet another busy wildfire season. California experienced its deadliest and largest wildfires in the past two years, including a fire that destroyed the town of Paradise, killing more than 80 people. And insurance claims have topped $12 billion for the November wildfires in California, making them the most expensive in state history. Earlier this month, Insurance Commissioner Ricardo Lara said during Wildfire Preparedness Week, quote, while last year's tragic wildfires turned thousands of people's lives upside down, insurance is helping to rebuild and recover. Marla Schwartz-Parabani, National Catastrophe Specialist at Swiss Re, says there are clear lessons the insurance industry should learn from these devastating events. And I think the main point here is that, you know, not only has the wildfire risk increased due to the changing climate conditions, but the exposure to that risk has also increased. Um, And if you think about the trends in exposure and the trends in climate, um, it's quite obvious to see that should these trends continue, we would expect to see um, higher insured losses moving forward, but also higher um, economic losses, higher firefighting costs. Um, you know, a greater potential for loss of property and, and life, unfortunately. To listen to the full webinar, visit NAMIC.org. NAMIC is currently advocating for multiple legislative options in California designed to educate consumers about wildfire risk and assist interested stakeholders in their efforts to prevent and mitigate wildfire loss. Renewed trade tensions between the United States and China have emerged over the past week. President Donald Trump followed through on his threat to increase tariffs after Chinese negotiators backed away from parts of an agreement that the U.S. says was already finalized. The president says this is a substantial step. Well, the reaction is very simple. China has been taking advantage of the United States for many, many years. I'm not just talking about during the Obama administration. Uh, You can go back long before that. And it's been taking out 400, 500, 600 billion dollars a year out of the United States. And we can't let that happen. Uh, We're in a very strong position. Our economy has been very powerful. Theirs has not been. Uh, We've gone up a lot since our great election in 2016. Many of the goods included in the tariffs are components used for automobile manufacturing and repair. NEMIC has warned the administration that any increase in the cost to repair an automobile could have a negative impact on the auto insurance industry and its policyholders. With the National Flood Insurance Program set to expire at the end of this month, the U.S. House has agreed to another short-term extension to keep the program running through the end of September. The measure still must pass the Senate, and NEMIC has urged lawmakers there not to wait. A lapse in the program could be problematic for millions of Americans still recovering from recent flooding. 
This will be the 11th short-term extension of the NFIP in less than two years. Here at NAMIC, we talk a lot about demonstrating the value of mutuality. Being mutual is what makes NAMIC members unique because they operate solely for the benefit of their policyholders. On today's Unscripted, our Chuck Chamness talks with Ross Buckmuller, president and CEO of Pure Insurance, about how the relatively young insurance company takes an innovative approach to create a sense of belonging among its policyholders. Well, uh, welcome. Ross Buckmuller here with uh, Pure, Privilege Underwriters Reciprocal Exchange. Really happy to have you with us, Ross. Nice to be with you, Chuck. So... You, know, you have a great background, I and mean, we talk about, let's say, NAMIC's retention rate. It exceeds 99% uh, every year. It has to. There aren't a lot of new mutuals being created. But, in fact, you are the CEO of a mutual that is relatively new and was created by you on a business plan that you designed based on experience you had in another part of the industry in what is your focus, the high net worth business. So you give us a little sense of, you know, Pure was 2007-ish? Yeah, so we started the company in 2006, and... and um you know, so I had left AIG it really uh, right after Mr. Greenberg left in 2005, but before the financial crisis kicked in, and and we had a um, a point of view that that we could serve uh, the needs of successful families who had unique properties and and uh, collections and liability needs uh, that we could do it better. And then as we went about building the business out. Uh, you know, certainly, the original business plan had no reference to uh, mutuality in any way. Um, but I think two two things were happening at the same time. Uh, the way our CFO likes to tell it, he was inside grinding the numbers, trying to figure out how to make it work, how to be able to build a business that would be uh, delivering great value to consumers, that would be delivering great returns to shareholders, would... Um, be able to find this alignment of interest where everybody won. And every time he did it, he kept finding that in order to make more money, you'd end up having to, you know, charge more from customers. And he continued to battle with this with this uh, dynamic. And at the same time, again, as he likes to tell it, uh, one of my partners and I were out probably having a fancy lunch someday with some fancy investor who was bragging about how much he liked this uh, niche industry because the margins were so big and it was so easy to to take advantage of you know wealthy busy people who weren't paying attention to their premiums right and pay for convenience I want to buy it all and you just take care of me and yeah so I think that that we came back and both from different perspectives said you know what if we could focus on alignment of interest and so we we wrote alignment of interest up on the board, and we began to look at what that meant and be able to un- unpack this. Um, from that, we, we studied the J.D. Power surveys that continued to indicate that, uh, that mutual companies were creating greater satisfaction. We looked at mutual holding company uh, structures that might provide us flexibility. And ultimately, we came upon the reciprocal structure that to us created a very pure form mutuality of policyholders contributing capital to to build their own company with gains allocated back to them and the flexibility to have a for-profit management company that would allow us to pursue the entrepreneurial dreams um, and to have the capital flexibility if um, we saw either opportunity or pain along the way that we would have the ability to respond and so 13 years plus on and just uh, couldn't be happier. 
So tell us about the uh, growth tra trajectory as you've uh, started with, you know, blank sheet of paper in 2006 and now where you are today. Yeah, so, so we've crossed a billion dollars of premiums in force, which is a nice milestone along the way. But it's, you know, our, our little niche is probably a $30 billion industry. So insuring high-valued homes and cars and jewelry and art. So in many respects, we are, um, uh, it's a nice milestone, but there's a long way to go. You know, this year we'll, we'll be up uh, well over 20% again. And, um, uh, but at the same time, we tend to think even of a 20% growth company, we're a little bit more of the, of the tortoise than the hare. Uh, a conservative underwriting, the fundamental view of select, careful, responsible members who, who are um, a good addition to the, to the membership, that's our focus. So we talked a little bit, I spoke this morning, we're at NAMIC CEO Roundtable event uh, in Orlando right now, and I talked a little this morning about some consumer research we did, which unfortunately found that only of the 1,000 uh, personal lines consumers that we uh, surveyed, I think only 26% uh, were not aware at all of the word mutual or the concept of mutual insurance. Uh, however, in the same survey, we found that for those who were aware uh, of the you know, mutual insurance, they believed in the kinds of things I think you're talking about in terms of policyholder alignment and customer satisfaction and the value that's delivered through it. You've you know, built the company you know, policyholder by policyholder through independent agents, specialized independent agents. And in that sales process, you've all, one of your key selling points has been, we're different, we're aligned with your interests, we're a mutual, we're pure. How do you communicate that? Or what advice would you give for so many of our listeners who are other mutual insurance companies, maybe in a little different business with a different history, to be able to sell the value of being mutual? Yeah, so in the very beginning, uh, I think most of the things we used to sell the reciprocal were straight out of our sales prevention department. You know, just <laughs> a multi-page uh, subscriber's agreement that everybody had to sign um, and, and if you think about it, if you went to any insurance company, a stock company or mutual, and said, let me start by trying to describe the capital structure, uh, I, think, I think it's probably not where, where you start. And I think uh, the amazing thing over time is that as you live it, as we allocate monies back to the membership in the form of subscriber savings accounts, a model that we took from the tremendous success USAA had with, with that, um, as we... Uh, reward members who've made five years worth of surplus contribution to build up the strength of their company and they see their cost of insurance go down in their sixth year and the NPS jumps by double digits in that in that sixth year um, you know that membership becomes more tangible and then the the joy that people get from that um, is realized. So one of the questions we ask our membership in the annual survey, besides how likely are you to refer, and the NPS this year is 72, which is uh, pretty strong Very for, for a house and car insurance company, but is, is how much do you agree with the statement that says, I feel like a member? Uh, because I do think that people want to feel like they belong to something. It's not merely that we are operating the company with a stronger sense of of an alignment of interest, but that you feel it. You feel that we are more transparent, that every year we provide a report of our accounts to see uh, where your money is going, that, uh, that we are acting proactively. One of the things that we did is um, we started providing every member 
with their auto recall information, arguably before the dealerships ever or the manufacturers ever did. So they felt if there was a safety matter that they heard from us right away that we activate a situation room dozens and dozens of times throughout the year when there's an event that they should know about, whether it is a weather event, which it frequently is, or a cyber breach, but making people feel connected and as if they belong. Uh, and so while we might have started the business with the belief that a lower cost of capital and a long-term alignment of interest was a massive competitive advantage, and it is, I think this sense of belonging, being a member, has proven to be a, a tremendous selling point. So all of this growth, uh, zero to a billion, basically in all 50 states now, has required a lot of recruiting, new people. Um, I know you have a certain way of attracting talent, uh, and I think part of it involves selling some of the same characteristics that you're talking about here. How are you doing that? Yeah, so I, th I think that, that uh, gosh, probably nine years ago, we, we, we began an effort to find smart, curious, recent college grads who we thought we could introduce them into a, an insurance career. And they've just been so successful, so inspiring in many ways, the fresh ideas that the program has getting bigger and bigger. And, um, you know, now hundreds of young folks have joined and are playing a big, big role. It, it's finding people who have a growth mindset and an intellectual curiosity and those who, I think, appreciate the humanity of our business and bring a strong emotional intelligence and, and empathy you know, we have 700 employees or so, so more than half of them have joined us from um, other either insurance companies or organizations. So it's certainly not that it's it's uh, it's only young people, but uh, it is uh, it is heavily. Um, when you're in our offices, you you do uh, you do see the youth. Yeah. Let's talk about innovation. Um, it's a big part of your business model. Uh, last week I was at AM Best and interviewed Matt Mosier, their global head of ratings. Uh, AMBEST has announced they're going to begin measuring innovation as part of the ratings process in the business profile segment. Uh, I asked Matt a few questions about that because I think that's a tall order for them to try to evaluate on the front end. We know how hard it is just to know on after the fact whether you got it right. How are you using innovation uh, to drive the business? Yeah. Well, a couple different different areas. I, I think one right now is is, is that we've put a, a tremendous amount of energy into member experience, which is both big breakthrough ideas, uh, but it's also removing friction from everything we do. And so sometimes the innovation is is removing a thorn, which which may not seem all that all that innovative. Um, we've worked through lots and lots of training. We just had a, a, a session last week with the former head of innovation at Disney on, on a really interesting workshop. But, but learning a lot of methods, and I'll, I'll give you a couple examples. One of them is, is ask a different question. Large, multi-generational, uh, wealthy families come and say, because we have dozens of family members and hundreds of policies that we want to have the billing being done like the 1970s with the agent or broker doing the billing and not sending direct bill where you have to worry about all the transactional stuff. And so if you listen to what the, the, thing, the, the request was, you would set up an agent bill operation. And what we realized with the real request is, is let's get rid of transactional billing altogether. Um, and, and 
you'll have all of your policies, whether you just have house and car insurance or you have dozens of policies covering multi, multiple generations. Um, and every period of time, all your transactions will be, will be measured and the train will leave the station and you, you, you pay the bills. That came by having the discipline to ask a different question instead of just answering what was what was asked of us, and we try to go through that all the time to find out are we are we um, you know look focusing on the right the right thing. Uh, I think that that realizing that somebody else has probably done it before is probably the source of a great deal of innovation. We watched in research that people. Insurance companies would measure how quickly you respond to a claim and how quickly and fairly you pay, but in between, they wouldn't necessarily let you know where they where you stood on that process. And one of the team members, you know, said, "It's funny. I I can go order from Domino's, and I know when my pizza was put into the oven, and then when it went sent to the delivery." And we looked at this pizza tracker and said, "We should be able to build a claims tracker on the exact same view, so that." Um, that you knew where payments were being made and you knew which, who was the real estate agent who was helping you find an alternative accommodation and you had transparency into the process, it had a profound effect besides the fact that, that we realized there was great value in helping consumers have transparency into their claim. You know, if you're an adjuster and you want to demonstrate empathy, but you're writing your notes that are kind of snarky comments that might not ever be seen and now your comments are read by the consumer, um, your files are a lot tidier, and, mm-hmm. and, and I think you're more thoughtful in the way you communicate, and it's a great value. So that came really from recognizing somebody else probably did the same thing somewhere else, and, and we try to look and see what it is that we're trying to solve, and maybe somebody can guide us as a way to, to do that. So you have uh, the benefit of being only you know, a decade-plus uh, old, 12, 13 We're teenagers years. now. Teenagers, yes, you are. Many of our member companies are 100 years old, and, and one of the impediments to innovation is legacy systems. I think of you all and, and think surely that is not an issue, but then again I think, well, it's teenagers. You probably even have some of these issues today in terms of what is your ability to innovate, how can you put the pizza tracker in with whatever system you're operating with that maybe you bought in 2008 yeah. that you're dealing with today. How, how do you deal with that? Because these are tremendously important projects that uh, you know, we hear so much about from uh, our member company leaders. That's a, really, that's a really good question. And I would tell you that one of the things that we thought about back in the early days was to respect the power of that green field, that we wanted to reduce the number of legacy issues that we created for ourselves. Um, right now we're in the process of replacing a billing system. So we built a billing solution that was not as modern and robust. It was quite clever, and as I described how it was an account bill that was um, eliminating transactions, it worked well, but it was not scalable for a business now our size and did not provide all the options. And so as we replace this, we appreciate how, how few projects like that we have. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do think we made some really good decisions early on with um, a policy system and a claim system and, and a financial system, and we continue to upgrade things like, um, you know, Workday for HR and and various business intelligence tools. Uh, but we certainly are grateful for um, a pretty clean green field that we haven't soiled too badly. Well, Ross, uh, here's to uh, more green fields in the future, and uh, here's to your continued success as a great example of a new mutual insurance company. 
uh, that has had an incredible uh, life up through the teenage years. So here's to another uh, 100 years or so. Thanks, Chuck. Thanks for the time today. On the next Unscripted, Chuck talks with NAMIC Regional Vice President Paul Martin, who's earned the nickname Prepper Paul here around the office. We'll hear about his lifelong mission to help others become better prepared for emergencies. And that's a wrap for this episode of Insurance Uncovered. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast, and we hope you'll keep tuning in as we return with more insurance news and information on May 29th. If you have a topic or issue you'd like us to uncover, don't hesitate to let us know. You can send us an email at uncovered at Until next time, I'm Kathy Imus. Have a great day.